What is going on, people? Welcome back to another episode of the Uncensored Critic Podcast. Thank you for joining me for one more special episode. I really, really appreciate all your support and your love so far. Thank you so, so much. And today, it gives me great pleasure to be joined by one of the most prestigious directors, writers, producers, and actors that Hollywood has ever produced. And this man is responsible for films such as, I mean, if I was to go through his entire CV, I would be here for the majority of the episode, just listing off everything he's done. (laughs) And so he's responsible for films such as Restless Natives, Soap Dish, Restoration with Robert Downey Jr., The Narrows, 12 and Holding, The Eagle, Promised Land with Kiefer Sutherland and Meg Ryan, Gambits with Colin Firth and Cameron Diaz, and a quite superb adaptation of Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream with casts including Michelle Pfeiffer, Callista Flockhart, Anna Friel, Rupert Everett, Stanley Tucci, Christian Bale, and Dominic West. And just reading just those credits is just making me feel so overwhelmed. And just th- thank you so much, Mr. Michael Hoffman, for joining me today. How are you, sir? I'm very well, very well. Thank you very much for that info. The one only person you met, didn't mention in that um, Midsummer Night's Dream cast, who I think is absolutely brilliant, is Kevin Klein. Oh, of course. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And Kevin Klein as well. Shout out, shout out for, yeah, because I've worked with him a few times and I'm getting ready to work with him again. Fantastic. And he's a wonderful actor. What was it like working with all those guys on Midsummer Night's Dream? Uh, great. I mean, peculiar only in that we didn't really, I never had the entire cast together even one day at one moment. Yeah, because so so you had, you know, we the mechanicals were in first and then bottom stayed and and Michelle came and we did the stuff with 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 bottom and Titania and then Rupert and Stanley came and who were playing Oberon and, and Puck respectively. And we did that stuff. And then the lovers came in and then we finished with them. And so it was it was a very, you know, it was just but I, I, you know, I'd been in the play three or four times. I directed the play on stage a couple of times, mm-hmm. so I felt very confident about it and 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 about the sort of style that I that I wanted to employ. And so I was able to, I, I guess, communicate that. Um, I've done quite a bit of Shakespeare as an actor as well, so I feel comfortable directing actors with it. Um, but uh, yeah, but that was that was a, a challenging part of the process absolutely mm. i'm usually i don't think i've ever had that experience on a film any other film where i haven't been able to re- rehearse with the entire or a the principal cast beforehand and sometimes yeah. i rehearse quite a bit yeah well, that's really interesting because like because all the lovers and everything in that play when you're rehearsing for the theater you know as you know everyone's all together all the time and it must right. be and yeah and it's and it's complicated stuff i mean farce you know people sometimes undervalue comedy and think of it as not as, as as difficult or important somehow as 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 drama but in fact i mean on a technical level it's much more complex and much more demanding yeah. um and that though the those scenes with the lovers are particularly complicated just on the level of blocking and business and the way in which you know and and then of course wanting to make certain you're really preserving the people and their story and what matters, you know, emotionally, because if that's not there, then the audience is not going to take any interest, no matter how many gags you mm. manage to put together. Yeah, that's so cool. I mean, one of the questions I have today, before we sort of kick off with like my main question, I think this is a good time to introduce this one, mm-hmm. uh, is to say, so 
you know, what was it like um, when you approached that project for the first time? Because, you know, the challenge of summer, yeah. So taking a theatrical piece and making it cinematic, what was that challenge like? Well, I mean, I suppose one of the things was trying to figure out what kind of world to put it in, you know, mm -hmm. because there's so many, I mean, because, you know, the play itself says it's set in Athens, but what does that mean, you know? And because it isn't really something like you look at, you look at a play like Troilus and Cressida, yeah. which is set during the Trojan War. And then you really do feel in fact, that there's some notion of, of a historical context, like you do in Macbeth or like you do in Hamlet, you know, but Midsummer Night's Dream is so fantastical. And in fact, so many of the specific references are basic to Shakespeare's boyhood mm. and to the woods around Stratford and fairy lore that he grew up with. So, you know, it's one of the only, I think one of the only two plots Shakespeare actually invented, actually invented mm. everything else he adapted from something else. But so he's, he's pulling a, a lot from kind of English folk tradition. So, so, you know, where you end up setting it, but I guess I, I thought, why, you know, I, I thought, you know, another one of the challenges of Midsummer Night's Dream in, uh, on film that doesn't exist in theater is that, in, in, you know, film is much more um, sensitive to issues of point of view. Mm. And, um, you know, in you, if you do Hamlet, you know that it's a, move, a play or a movie about Hamlet. Mm. If you do Macbeth, you know, it's a play or a movie about Macbeth. Midsummer Night's Dream, it's easy to say what it's about, what it, what, you know, what the theme is in terms of maybe, I mean, I would say it's about love and transformation, but it's very difficult to say who it's about. So I had to make a choice in terms of, you know, who was my protagonist. And so then I started thinking about, you know, because I really love working with Kevin and that he would be brilliant to play bottom, but it was a very different bottom I'd had in mind than I'd than any I'd ever seen, who was more about, you know, who was more love, who was had a kind of lovelorn aspect, who was, who was a really unhappy man, not a, just an unconscious um, braggart, but a really unhappy man who, whose posturing was there to hide his loneliness. And so in fact, he was someone who was really in need of finding love. Mm -hmm. That provided a center for everything else to, to swirl around. Um, so that was a really important step in, in translating it from the stage and productions I'd been in, productions I directed on stage and, and, and the film was like who, you know, figuring out who it was about. That was probably the most. And then, you know, if, if you say, you know, people in, 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 in film writing classes are always saying, you know, you know, come up with your premise statement and what, what is, what makes a, what's, how do you state the premise of a film? Well, there's the who is about, it's what the situation is or the problem is, and, you know, what the world is that you're in, you know. So if we're talking about um, uh, Tootsie, then it's about, Dustin, I mean, Michael Dorsey, Dustin Hoffman, mm -hmm. who's an out-of-work actor, and he's desperate to prove himself as an actor, and that's basically what his situation is, and that's what leads him to, to prove to other people that he can get a job. He dresses up as a woman and gets the job of Dorothy Michaels on the soap opera. Um, but uh, but then and then the world is what New York, New York television, New York the world of theater, New York the world of television, New York the world of actors in New York. Okay, 
So um, in this case, I was just thinking in terms of the world, I don't, I can't, it's, it's hard for me to remember, to really remember how I got to Tuscany, except for it was a place I'd come to love and was very magical for me. And I'd spent a lot of time there and had grown up a lot there. And my imagination had grown up a lot there. And uh, cause I'd done a lot of writing when I was there. And I guess it was partly because of that. And then I started searching around, well, does it make sense? And what does it even mean? Uh, you know, fairyland in Tuscany. And then I came across this really strange book of folklore, which, which was so, you know, as people have been to Tuscany, they know that before in before the before the Romans even there were people called the Etruscans who lived in in that part of Italy, yeah. and uh, so but one of the beliefs was in the, the the Etruscans themselves believed that as as people as a people became less powerful and they were forgotten they became smaller and this became a part of Tuscan folklore that the peop that the that the forest was full of what had once been this great people and these great gods mm. had who had been shrunk by in a way by they'd gotten smaller through a lack of interest and attention mm. but they were still there and still alive and still animated nature so so i got really kind of intrigued by that mm. so i kept finding correspondences right that made it a good landscape for for to tell a story about love and transformation Fantastic. That's, I mean, and I think the the location really helped, especially those scenes in the woods. It really helped to, but you felt well. For most of us, I really felt the magic in the woods, like in those scenes, particularly between Puck and Oberon. And yeah, 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 yeah. Stanley and Stanley and Rupert are great. Stanley's a treasure. He's a wonderful actor. Yeah, yeah absolutely. He's a wonderful actor. You know, hopefully, I get to work with him one day. But uh, if you see him, give him my best. Uh, yeah. And so I suppose, yeah. So let's my. I always love talking about the beginning of journeys as well. I will probably come back to Midsummer a little bit later in terms of okay. with story structure and things like that. But uh, for you on a level, um, where did the love of the arts, where did the love of directing start for you? Where did it come from? I don't know. I mean, it started as a love of, I mean, I think it started as a love of story. Mm -hmm. And then, it, and, and the way I understood that initially was, um, I mean, I wanted to be an actor, but I do remember for some reason, which I still don't understand, because I grew up in this tiny little town in the desert in Idaho and in a house with not many, many books, uh, except the Bible. It was very, we were, my family was very religious. And, um, and, but I did, I went to the library and I checked out this copy of Lamb's Tales from Shakespeare with this big picture of Richard Burton on the cover with the mm. holding his crown above his head. And I'm not sure whether I was fascinated by the picture or what it was or why I dragged Shakespeare home at six years old. But I was always intrigued by the thing. I don't know what, it, you know, it's, it's interesting. A guy named James Hillman wrote a book called The Soul's Code. And he talks about the way in which we, that, that everyone is born with a kind of kernel of who they are. And, you know, teachers and parents, it's really their task to sort of encourage that kernel in that person to grow you know mm. and of course it's a responsibility of the individual as well to try to get in touch with that and foster that and find out you know who they are um but uh so i think it was in a way i have to say it was sort of in me um and then when i 
at a certain point though, I, I, I remember probably when I was about 18, being in a play and thinking it was a comedy. And I, I remember thinking, you know what? I can sort of stand outside myself and see how I could make this scene work better. Mm. It was a strange experience of like being both, which is a place you, it's not a bad place to be as an actor if you can be fully in and outside as well. I mean, I, you know, everybody knows what that is, whether they're dancing or that we, when you're in the zone or playing sports, there's this moment where you're hyper-conscious mm. and you're completely in the flow physically at the same time. Mm -hmm. It's a very, very good place to be. And we get there, all get there seldom enough. Um, but I think that in, 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 in that case, I sort of went, oh, wait, maybe I could, could direct because I can, I can see how to fix these things. I can see how to stage these things. And so I directed, I don't, but I was acting so much and I really wanted to be an actor, but I did end up directing a play when I was maybe 20, 21, um, because I was very interested in, in, in processional theater and I was very interested in Grotowski. And so I started like playing with some of these ideas. But then, but then when I won a Rhodes Scholarship and I got, went to Oxford and um, when I got there, I found it was more, although I did still act quite a bit, I found it more difficult to integrate myself into casts with, you know, English, English accents and English plays. Um, so I began directing more. And then I directed uh, a production of Midsummer Night's Dream, actually, which was very successful and got a, attention in, inside and outside of Oxford. And someone came to me, uh, was another student, and said, you know, dude, I want to direct a film. And I said, I had no interest in directing film. It would never occurred to me to direct a film. I just, I wanted to, I liked, I loved the theater and I loved academia. And I thought I'd go do my PhD in medieval drama. That was what I was in. I was working on a book about Shakespeare's late plays and I was very kind of a nerd. But um, but I said, because it looks so safe, so harmless, because all he wanted was me to do was 20 minutes on video when I thought, well, that's, you know, how big of that, you know, maybe that's an interesting exercise. Um, and the reason they were, they he wanted me was because I was very connected to all the actors at Oxford and, you know, and, 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 you know, and among them being Imogen Stubbs and James Wilby and Hugh Grant. And, you know, there was, and so, so, and Mark Williams and, you know, a lot of, a lot of people have gone on to have careers, but anyway, he, he, he knew that I could access, had access to, to, to the acting community. And um, then a strange thing happened. One of our professors, um, a guy named Michael Howard, who was the Regis professor of history at, at our college, Oriel, said, I, don't, I, I do love drinking wine with young men. And we were sitting having a glass of wine with him in his, in his, in his uh, rooms. And he said, oh, I, I have a friend who's interested in film. And we said, who's that? And he said, John Schlesinger, you know, who just recently won the Oscar for Midnight Cowboy, who actually, we felt did in fact qualify for someone who was interested in film. You know, having made Darling, Billy Liar, Sunday Bloody Sunday, Anyway, so he said, would, would, would you boys like to meet John? And we're like, oh yeah, sure, why not? So anyway, so we go to dinner with John and he says, oh, what can I do for you, gents? And we said, well, Mr. Schlesinger, would you lead our 
you know, the short screenplay, we he's like, oh, no, 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 no. You, you, you want to make a film. You're going to need some things. You're going to need lights. You're going to need cameras. You're going to need editing facilities. You're going to need costumes. You're going to need film stock. You're going to need um, sound facilities. You're going to, and I can give you all those things. Mm-hmm. And we're like, what, how, what? And he said, well, look, I have just made the biggest failure in the history of the British cinema, a movie called Honky Tonk Freeway, which he made, John made after Midnight Cowboy and completely flopped. Mm-hmm. But he'd put, he'd done, he put a ton of money into the British film industry. And he said, everybody in town owes me favors. So all of a sudden here, we're a bunch of idiots and we have free run of Samuelson's for camera equipment, Lee's for lights, Angel's Costumier, Twickenham Studios to do all of our editing and post-production. And then, so we then go out and raise, get a bunch of our kind of wealthy student friends drunk and they pledge 17,000 pounds. So now we have 17,000 pounds. We have, we have everything you need to make a film except a screenplay because the screenplay was so bad. So I went and locked myself away in my, in my, my, my girlfriend at the time who did the music for the film, who named her name's Rachel Portman. She's gone on to win two Oscars for com- com- composing one for Emma and one for Cider House, Cider House Rules. Yeah. Um, anyway, I went to her house and, and locked myself in and wrote this script <laughs> and and then we cast it with some of the people I've mentioned, Imogen Stubbs, Hugh Grant, uh, um, a wonderful actress named Diana Cadis, a wonderful actor named Rob Woolley, Mark Williams, uh, James Wilby. Um, anyway, so, and, and so we ended up making this movie, right? Mm-hmm. And then the BBC, when they saw the dailies, gave us the money to finish it. And then it got released all over the world. I mean, as a feature. So I accidentally became a film director through this experience. And I remember thinking this movie really isn't very good and talking to my editor and, um, and he, he said, it doesn't matter. You're a film director. Now you'll get offered another movie. And I said, no one who sees this movie would offer me another movie. He said, yeah, wait and see. And I did. <laughs> lo and behold. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I guess, you know, it was just that, but um, it was an amazing project. And so many of the people like the, 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 the first time I ever saw a film camera was the first day of principal photography, which is crazy. Really? Yeah, really. That's really, I was, oh, okay. Oh, so that's what it looks like. And, but the cinematographer became my great friend and, uh, we made several movies together. He's shot, his name's Uli Steiger. He's made, mm. I don't know how many movies with Roland Emmerich. Um, he's, he's a very big cinematographer. Rachel, who did the music, of course. Andy Patterson was the AD who produced Hillary and Jack. He's gone on to produce Hillary and Jackie, Girl with the Pearl Earring, Railway Man. Um, wow. His wife, who did the continuity, Olivia Hetreid wrote Girl with Pearl Earring. She's just written a movie called Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, which is going to be, I think, really huge this year. Um, but it was just like this whole bunch of people has gone on. I mean, we, we're, we're going to have a 40, a 40, because it's 40 years since we made it this, this, this year. So we're going to do a, a screening at Oxford and invite everybody up and 
and have a have a bit of a reunion wow. bash. <laughs> Sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, no, that'll be good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It feels like uh, there's like a pattern emerging of like divine intervention, like you just picking up that book of Shakespeare at six, and then you sort of falling into film directing and like discovering what a camera. Yeah, you know, it's some. It's some. I mean, I mean, I think I understood that I wanted to be a storyteller. I think I understood that, yeah. you know, I think that I, and because I, I never really questioned my life as an actor. And I don't think I would have questioned it as a writer. I did question it as a director, partly because I could never, I had a hard time early on squaring my lack of experience and my perceived lack of of ability with the fact that it was me that everyone was looking to, to make all the decisions. I couldn't quite see why should everybody be, why is my vision, why does my vision matter? You know, and I wasn't, I didn't have it in me at that point to go, go, okay, I see clearly that I'm the channel of this, this version of the story. Mm. And, and that's okay, because that's, you know, that's, and as long as I'm, really trying to put my ego second, put it in second place to the, the to, to the, my intuitive, my intuitive perception of the demands of the story and what it's about, then I could get square with it. But I did almost quit after I, I made, I guess, four movies. And I had really, I mean, I had a couple of incredible breaks, obviously this thing at Oxford and with, and with John Schlesinger was really helpful in, in that situation, but then, even more to the point, I I wrote another script. Um, I sort of thought I shouldn't be writing about, you know, the English middle classes <laughs> from Idaho. So I wrote a script called Promised Land about um, my my something happened in my hometown, mm. and um, Robert Redford got it and he really liked it and he wow. wanted to take it to the Sundance Institute as one of the projects. And then he just sort of adopted it and adopted me and he produced two other, two of the, uh, I mean, I made one movie in between, which is this movie, Restless Natives, which is super fun and the movie I really love, um, which was, on a, came, came out of a, was Sundance related, but came out of a completely different channel, which I can tell you about, which is, was fun. But um, but then I made Promised Land and Some Girls with, with Red, Redford's company, Wildwood. But at the end of that, I, I, thought, I'm not sure that this is how I want to spend my life. And I think it comes partly from my background in this, growing up in this evangelical church, thinking, although I'm certainly not that anymore and had questioned that from a relatively early age, it's still, the part of it that made sense to me was that we need to be of service in our lives, that we need to do things for other people and we need to try to make change for the better if we can. And, um, and I, wasn't, I wasn't convinced at that point that storytelling, well, not storytelling, but me being a film director was doing that. And uh, so I wrote to Redford and I said, you know, I'm really grateful for everything you've done for me, but I really think I, I'm, I, you know, I've applied to the Peace Corps and I'm gonna, I wanna go spend a couple of years in Africa and I don't think I, I'm gonna stick with this. And, and he was super cool. And he wrote back and because he knew I was, I was going on a road trip. I was going to do an acting job in Florida and I was gonna drive from Idaho across the country and happened to be passing through 
Sundance. Mm -hmm. So he said, well, you know, why don't you stop by on your way through and let's have dinner and let's talk about this. So we sat down and, and talked about it and uh, got to the end. He didn't really judge anything or, but he, at the end, he goes, where are you going next? And I said, I'm going to go to Santa Fe. And he just took this little key out of his pocket and he goes, well, I have a house in Santa Fe. Why don't you go stay there, stay there for three or four days. And I guarantee you something will happen that will change your life. Wow. And I was like, okay, well, okay, I don't cool. know what that means, but I'm, 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 I'm happy. I'd like want to stay in Santa Fe. So I was traveling with this woman that our relationship was kind of near the end. I knew we kind of knew it was the last time we were going to spend together for a while. Um, but anyway, we were traveling across the country, get to Santa Fe, lovely little house. And I'm, but I'm having these fantasies that I'm going to, you know, go to some Anasazi ruin and run into the ghost of a medicine man, or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be able to read the pictographs or petroglyphs in the rocks there that something the coat is going to appear to me like Joseph Smith and the golden tablets or something. And um, nothing like that happened. But the last <laughs> night I was there, uh, I was with, I was, Katerina and I were having a, a got into a fight and I didn't want to go to bed and she did. And so I stayed up and I, I, there was this one room in this little house that I'd never gone into because it was, it was, I thought it was a closet actually, mm -hmm. but I opened the door and it was a very small room. I mean, tiny, like maybe three meters by three meters as is if that's, and, and, and all that was there was a 13 inch television and, and six videotapes which are these interviews between Bill Moyers and Joseph Campbell called The Power of Myth. Uh -huh. And so I stuck one in and I started watching and he said certain things in those, in those interviews that really made me rethink myself. And one of them was through all cultures, through all times, there, man has had four ways of getting to God, singing, dancing, storytelling, and silence. And when I heard that, I went, I'm a storyteller. Mm -hmm. That's what I am. I didn't understand. I didn't understand myself in that way. And somehow by understanding myself as a storyteller, it completely reanimated my desire to work in this field. And I never really questioned it again. You know, I just canceled my application to the Peace Corps and made another movie. <laughs> <laughs> Again, it sounds like divine intervention. It's like, yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, I don't, you know, I, I don't know what it, it's a divine intervention. I mean, I think that we all have, there is a, I'm into, I really believe in intuition. I really believe oh, in this kind yeah. of inner voice experience. I've had it happen too much not too and, and and when my head gets out of the way and i actually respond to this impulse that comes from my body in a different way I, i'm even if it feels like what i'm being it's being whispered to me to do even if it feels wrong it's always right it's just amazing how sometimes it's really counter counter to what you'd think was the safest, smartest, best bet, but it's been right again and again and again. So I've yeah. gotten better about getting out of my head and listening to my body. Sure. So I'm an so I'm an intellectual by nature. I mean, I'm I'm when I say an intellectual, I don't mean like 
hyper intelligent. I mean, like I just operate from my head. Mm. Um, so that's been kind of one of my, you know, everybody has their own struggles in, in this business and there's, and we all sabotage ourselves in certain ways. And for me, over intellectualizing was one of those ways mm -hmm. and giving into my fear was the, was probably the biggest one. Oh yeah, me too. It took me even longer to, to overcome. And I still, I mean, I still, we all run up against anxieties about or insufficiencies in certain ways, but, but I've certainly gotten much, much better about trusting myself in whatever situation and believing, I mean, on an artist, I mean, I don't mean like alligator wrestling or, you know, going, <laughs> in, you know, you know, having a one-on-one -on -one with a anaconda or something. I mean, like, like there are certain things that, yeah, I would, I just think are smart not to do, but, um, but in terms of, but in terms of those kind of fears and tensions and get in the way of us all as creators, I've gotten much better at being able to, you know, walk right into them and realize that they're phantoms, you know, they're very little substance to any of the stuff we're afraid of. Absolutely. Well, it's, well I think I speak on behalf of a lot of people. Thank you for following your intuition and for being a storyteller. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, um, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a incredible blessing in terms of a way to live a life. If you can live your life as a creative person, I don't think there's anything better because it's, I mean, you're insured of a, of an extraordinary level of richness, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. I'm going to put that better myself. Uh, so, so it brings me to the first sort of technical question for today. Um, I know you, yeah. you write and you know, you've know you made films which you know, you've know you worked with a writer which you haven't written mm -hmm. and, and things like that. So I was curious to know, how, how long does it take to create um, a vision for a film like so and, and what you want to do with it? It's like, how long do you sort of take to sort of find the vision of the film that that you've written or anyone else has done and then you decide that's what you want to do with it i don't know i think that's a, it's like a dialogue right it just never it never it's a dialectical process it never really stops i mean you're you have an idea and that's and then you you that's either an alternative to that idea pops up in your own head or comes from someone else and then you synthesize those ideas and then you move on to a, a new version that becomes the kinds of, you know, the, the a synthesis that becomes the new thesis. And then you continue to work in that dialectical way, you know, with all the input you're getting from, from, from those around you. I don't know. I mean, some, I mean, I would, I, I suppose one thing that is true is that if you can get very connected to what you're making a film about and you have that, touchstone that that guides really guide you in terms of you know i mean it's like i'm doing this workshop at the national film intelligence school on thursday and and these number of six people have written these 10 page scripts mm -hmm. and they just want me to go out there with a the cinematographer and, and talk about you know how to break down a scene and and you know just the process of 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 reading rehearsing blocking shooting you know which is you know, can be very straightforward and can be a matter of just illustrating dialogue, but you hope not, right? Because you want to find a shot that expresses the scene so that the shot is actually 
complementing what you're telling a story about. You know, that there is, you know, and I believe generally there is a right shot to, although at the, at the same time as I don't believe in rightness or being right, mm -hmm. I think there's, there is, or rather, I mean, I'm, yeah, put it that way, that, that it, you are, it, you are, it's possible to find a shot that, that absolutely expresses what the scene is about. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean you won't need some coverage. Doesn't mean you might not, you want, may want to be in a close up at another point, or there's a, there may also be a shot that expresses something very specific in a moment within that scene that you want to make sure you can also, you know, cut, de deal with at the same time. But I, but I, but I think too many times people just go in and think about shooting master close-up close-up and they're just really like i said they're just really illustrating dialogue mm. and, I, and i would like to you know use this opportunity to i mean because i mean to me everything is about that like i'm constantly trying to think how do i use the design how do you how do i use the cinematography how do i use the music how do i you to to complement this overall you know notion of 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 it's not just the story you want to tell but the way you want to tell the story right yeah that's great and i think so the way you want to tell the story you know um you know you you gave us a talk um last week here at gsa about the how to write or get get the structure of it and uh, i was wondering if you could just touch on that um explanation just one more time uh, for the sake of today uh in terms of like how because you, you you set it out you showed you showed us your um you're like your sketchbook and it's full of like these like half rectangles and, and like so okay so this bit happens now and then it could you know the story could continue like this you know with this particular way I think use Romeo and Juliet as the example yeah so Romeo could continue being in love with Rosaline but oh no Juliet turns up and yeah then, and then what happens oh no then, then there's like another diversion which is like Mercutio turns turns up and gets stabbed or gets killed and then next yeah. thing, um, so would you mind just explaining how you sort of sit down? Well, and it's not really me. I mean, I'd love to take credit for that, but it goes back to it's, it's Aristotle, basically, who <laughs> says, you know, every, in his poetic says, you know, every story has a, you know, drama. One of the things you can say about dramas has a beginning, a middle and an end. And when you hear that, you think, well, that's, it, that's fairly obvious, but, but he means something a little bit more complex than that, which is that, you know, generally speaking in, in traditional Western storytelling, dramatic storytelling um you have you know you have a three-act structure you have and you also have within those three acts um also kinds of 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 points of action i'll call them or um or plot points that tend to occur at certain points in the story so i mean yeah so generally speaking if you watch a movie you probably find that around between eight to 10 minutes in, something that will, ha will happen that will, will turn the story, will, will, will actually create, well, what it really does is generally speaking, and this is, all, this is all general, right? There are exceptions and there are different ways to, to use these things and invert them and play with them and whatever, but I'm just talking about basic three-act structure. There's something called the initiating action, which is generally speaking, and this is true on stage as well, you know, you a, a routine is established, which is what we probably call the setup of, of, of the world. And then that routine is broken, right? So the setup in, in Romeo and Juliet, you've got, uh, you know, the Capulets and the Montagues at, 
each other's throats. You've got Romeo not very interested in, in, in the conflict because he's really a lover and he's really in love with a girl, as you said, named Rosalind. And then you go along for um, a chunk of the first act and they, and they find out about a ball that's gonna happen at the Capulet, at the, at the, at the Capulet Palace. And, and so, or, so all of a sudden, Romeo has, you know, he's, he's going, he's contemplating walking into the, the house of his enemy. Okay. So that's, but he's still anything. And the reason he's going is because he believes Rosalind is going to be there. So then, you know, we move along through the, the first act and, and yes, there is like a line going off into, if you can just imagine a line going off into to space that might go on forever, which is the capitalists and the Montagues continue fighting. Romeo either finally gets together with Rosalind, or maybe he doesn't, and she isn't interested in him and gets him together with someone else, whatever. But that just is a line that goes off into to space. But the thing that keeps it from going off space at the end of Act One is the fact that he meets Juliet at the Capulet Ball, palm to palm, this holy palmer's kiss, and that turns the story. So now it's going to be a story about Romeo and Juliet, the daughter of the Capulets, the son of the Montagues, these two families that hate each other, their children are in love. That complicates the setup, but it also produces, you know, an action. So all of a sudden, it's about Romeo trying to get Juliet to love him, Juliet trying to make sure it's for real and get Romeo to marry her. And that happens, which, which, so you then, so you've got this first act, which is generally, you know, a matter of exposition and setting up the story. Mm-hmm. You've got a second act then is about growing complication, you know, because now, okay, so now they're married. So now Romeo tries to make friends with Juliet's cousin Tybalt, who has a sworn hate, hate, a sworn enemy of the, of the Montagues. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and so that he, that leads to more conflict, which brings his friend into it, Romeo's friend Mercutio into it, who ends up getting killed in a duel with Tybalt. And then Romeo in his fury kills Tybalt. And so things complicate. So now Romeo is the murderer of his wife's beloved cousin. So how did that happen, right? So this is just, so, and now Romeo's banished, so they can't be together. So now you can imagine another line going off into, into space, which was a line where Romeo who's been, has been banished to Mantua and he just, you know, he's lives forever in Mantua, maybe marries a Montavani girl and he has some kids and, you know, maybe someday the, the, the prince relents and says, you can come back or who knows what. But anyway, meanwhile, Juliet, who was meant to get married at the beginning of the movie, is gonna, will be marrying Count Paris. She becomes a countess. She's, has children she sends them out to a nurse like her they their her life becomes their life and whatever but it doesn't happen because friar lawrence thinking i really think this is an opportunity to bring these two families together and solve the this internecine rivalry yeah. is says to juliet i have a potion that can put you to sleep for 42 hours and you'll sleep and they'll think you're dead and they'll put you in the family vault and then I'll get word to Romeo and he'll come rescue you. Okay, so now when Juliet drinks that potion, that turns the story. She's not gonna get married the next day anymore. Romeo's gonna get this message. 
So he's going to come back. So then, then things, the story's gotten quite narrow as it moves toward its resolution, where it can only go in very, very few places. I mean, when you're in Act One, the story could be any number of things. You know, the story could basically be, strangely enough, could be Midsummer Night's Dream. Mm. It's not that different. Ro you know, they, they, you know, Romeo could meet Juliet and they could just run off together into the woods because, you know, that's like the situation with Demetrius and Helena mm -hmm. in, in, in Midsummer Night's Dream. And that's the interest, or Demi oh, sorry, it isn't Demetrius, it's Lysandra and Hermia who are running yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But anyway, um, my the point remains the same. And that's one of the things that's so interesting about Shakespeare is, is, is you can look at, at the, it is a system. I mean, you can look at one play against another play and you can see again and again, oh, that's so interesting because Jaques is a form that the sort of malcontent or the melancholy Jaques is a form of, of Shylock, who's also the person who resides outside the dance, is a form of Malvolio, who's another person who resides outside the dance. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he continually plays with the same archetypes you know, and mixes them, shuffles them, mixes them up together and throws yeah. them out on the board and see what, what he comes up with this time. Like a massive cauldron of just bubbling characters just going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're, but they're, but they're, but they're also types that reoccur again and again and again, you know, it's quite interesting. Hmm. Oh, fantastic. Thank you so much for explaining that. You know, uh, I think I, I'm curious. The person who explains it really well, just to, just, yeah, to, of course. just to plug. Yeah. One of the people who who was really formative for, formative for me in my reading of dramatic literature is a man named Northrop Fry who wrote a wonderful book called The Anatomy of Criticism, and then he wrote two books on Shakespeare: one on the tragedies called Fools of Time, and one on the comedies called yeah. A Natural Perspective. And they really, really are wonderful books. Yeah, Anatomy of Criticism. Yeah, and. You love um, uh, Declan Donlan's book as well, The Actor and the Target. Yeah, I do. I do. I think it's very good. Yeah, I love it. I love it. It's particularly for the statement he makes where he says, uh, the question is never who's the most talented. The question is who's the most open. Mm. Because I'm a real believer that as soon as we start worrying about, am I talented? I mean, that is a fruitless road to go down. Just yeah. be That's open. Yeah, listen, listen to the voice inside yourself yeah. and be grateful for your opportunity to create and create with other people. Mm. Yeah, that's that's a big thing I want to talk to you about today, but um, the active process and auditioning and stuff like that. But just just before we get on to that, um, yep. Paul Simon uh, said this in an interview that when he writes a song, um, he writes it music first and then the lyrics come later. But he said once the sound is correct in his imagination, then the story can begin. I know that's a musical perspective, but so when you've written your script and you've got the film and you've and you've edited it and it's all ready to go, how do you know when does your imagination or your your intuition say, okay, it's ready? I've got everything I need at this point. I well, I don't I don't know I don't I don't know because I do I mean I think even now when I think back to some movies I think um oh, I wish I hadn't cut that scene. I wish I kept that moment. I mean, one of the things you have to be careful about as a, as a director in the preview process is that there's so much pressure. You know, you're getting these, you know, the test audience is watching it. They're filling out cards and they're telling you what you think. And inevitably, inevitably, I've never made a movie and I've never heard of a test screening 
where the audience didn't test audience didn't say it's too slow at the beginning. I mean, it's it's just I it's it's I it's partly because the nature of a test audience is they're not watching the way a movie the way that I don't know if you've ever been part of one of those test screening audiences, but you don't watch a movie in a natural way, right? You know, you're going to have to fill out a test at the end. So you're leaning forward, you know, your antenna are up, you're looking for things that are problems. So it's not basically how you, how you generally go into the cinema, but I think what it does do is it, because you're so attentive, it makes things, time goes more slowly. (laughs) I mean, I have this theory about that, that time, Time, our perception of time is related to how many, how many objects we notice in any given space. For, think about it this way. So you're walking somewhere, I don't know, you're walking from where you are now to the train station in Guilford. Mm-hmm. Now, the first time you ever do it, the walk feels quite long. Yeah. Right. And I think part of the reason is, is because you're looking all the time at everything to see where you are, to remember where you are. Is this the right way? Should I have turned right? Should I have turned left? By the 50th time you've walked it, it may not even feel, I mean, you may like get there before you even realized you left. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But this is because then you're able to go into a kind of alpha state because you're not examining the world. And so time changes the nature of time changes completely. Mm. So, but I think that the same thing happens in in with the test audience that they're looking for every signpost, and so it feels longer. But whether it does or it doesn't, it's it's something that um, I've fallen victim to, where I'm being told the movie's too long in the beginning, so I'll tend to trim things, and then. Much later, I'll look back and go, you know what? That, that even even if that even let's say let's say it was a little long at the beginning, what that gave to the to the to the piece in terms of richness or resonance or I mean, one of my this is a this is just a, a kind of fun example, but yeah. so there's in Soapdish there was a there's a mention between when when Robert Downey goes to Florida and recruits Kevin Klein to come back on the the soap opera, he says, you know, you know, we can do, you know, we could do Hamlet, we can do other things, right? Mm. And so there was there was a mention of one point of a one man Hamlet, and I actually shot the rehearsal of the one man Hamlet between Downey and Kevin, and it was so funny, wow. and then and I I didn't put it in the movie, and so it's basically lost for, forever. Oh, no. to drag because it's a very funny, you know, could have made a whole movie about the one man oh. Hamlet. Is, is, is there no like file like on your desktop like it's just saved there or is it literally been deleted? No, this is, I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's probably in a vault somewhere, Paramount, but I don't know. I mean, I it would. I guess I could try to access it, but I I would, wouldn't even know where to start. But it's really a drag because it's it was a you know with especially with those two actors. I mean, it would be a great thing just to have on the internet. I'm sure it would. Mm. Oh, would... Uh, YouTube, I'm sure, it would be very popular. I want to see this. Now. I want to see yeah, that. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sounds so cool. Um, so, yeah, so that, let's sort of come on to the um, acting sort of perspective. And you gave a fantastic workshop to, you did it down in the Bel Air Theatre down here in Guildford. And you've got some students from GSA up on stage yeah. and auditioned them uh, in three different ways. One was, I remember the first one was all about um, someone who'd learnt the piece, 
Exactly. Yeah, I think that the the, the three the the distinction was there was a one person was simply there and it was a cold reading, so they were seeing seeing the text for the first time. Yeah. Another one was a, a someone who who had read the entire play, but was just reading um, a short a short piece, mm-hmm. and another one who had been given the the sides and they've had the sides to study, didn't know what the whole play was, but it was a much longer piece with more places to go. I think those were the three. Yeah. Versions. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was, it was really interesting to see you sort of give this, give all this advice and stuff like that. And one thing you said to me on that day, which I found very helpful was if you're an audition, you know, and you mentioned it earlier, you know, don't worry about focusing on if you're talented or not, you know, just being open is the key. And I think you said, you know, it, I think you said like a successful audition is when I can see an actor just wanting to make that connection that, and being open and being like, this is what I'm trying to say to you. This is what I'm trying to do to you. Yeah, I mean, I think it's about partly about or to a great extent about, you know, being trusting yourself and being being um, owning the fact that you have something meaningful to give, you know. Mm-hmm. So that you're walking in there not as a potential victim, not as a beggar, not as, but as a fellow storyteller. Look, we're all a tribe of storytellers and we're at different points in our journey, but 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 you have every right to be in that room mm-hmm. and and to and to present what you think is a useful, you know, way to approach this character. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also good to be front-footed lean lean into it and go okay this is what i think it is but i'm really open and excited to hear what you think it is but can i just show you what i think it is mm-hmm. and then and then and then i really hope you'll you know you'll tell me where where you, what you what you, how you respond to what i'm what i'm doing and then tell me what what else we can you, you'd like to see me try mm-hmm. so you know you go in with with you know just i mean i i think maybe to talk about Thing to be confident isn't isn't the point. It's just simply respect the fact that you have trained yourself in this craft and you have chosen to uh, 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 an approach to this character with whatever information you have, and and be you know kind to yourself and supportive of yourself as you walk in that room and and give that gift to the person sitting there, you know? You're not there to please them. Hmm. You're simply there to say, this is what I believe, this from what I know, this is what I believe this this person is and what I believe this moment is and what I believe this person wants and I, what I believe is, is in the way of this person. Yeah, and so it's, I mean, it's just about, you know, just, I think it's it's hard though. It's it's hard to to you know because it's always set up as a hierarchical situation, or it often is. And I think it's very important that that you take responsibility for the fact that you you know you you have every right to look that uh, that fellow creative person right in the eye and say, "This is what I it's what I have to give you." Yeah, and well, you have like a story about an, an audition you had. Well, you you auditioned someone who really really blew you away, and that one that really really stuck out in your mind. Oh, 
I'm sure I do. Um, I, I, did you, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, a lot, um, actually. But uh, an actress who was, who actually auditioned for Promised Land and I didn't cast her. And then I cast her in like three other movies mm-hmm. afterwards, because I remembered her, you know, and after she made such an impression. Yeah. Um, she wasn't, I mean, she might've been right for Promised Land as well, if I think about it, but it, but it doesn't really matter. The point is that she came in and she was so, truthful and so, but also so specific. And her take on on the material was, um, there was a vulnerability about her that was, mm-hmm. and it, that operated in tandem with the sense of humor that I just was like, this person is got has got layers and layers and layers going on. So I think I, I think that's, that was part of it. Yeah, sorry. No, sorry. Can you say who, who, who it was? Oh, her, her name Sheila Kelly. Yeah. Oh, Sheila Kelly. Nice. I'm gonna look out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she's great. Yeah, fantastic. Um, I'm, you know, and when... terribly adventurous. She was also terribly adventurous creatively. Like, yeah. If I yeah. gave her a note or gave her an idea, she was able to take it and spin it into something that gave me exactly what I asked for, but gave me more as well. And so, I mean, but some of these things, it's very hard to say, I mean, how do you get someone to do that? Part of it is, you know, that was, I mean, the, I remember the first time I auditioned Downey. Um, I mean, that, I think we ended up spending five hours together. It wasn't on Restoration, it was on another movie that we never made. It wasn't mm-hmm. on Soap Dish either, it was before, before Soap Dish. But we got to know each other through that process where, it just became a session that was about playing and improvising and playing and improvising and playing and improvising, then going out and drinking. And I mean, it was like, it was just a, just some kind of, you know, I was knew I was in the presence of, of a really kind of unformed in some ways, but absolutely bottomless well of, of spontaneous creativity. I mean, he's amazing Downey. Amazing, yeah, he's 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 remarkable. I just just quickly, what do, what's he like as a person outside of outside of work? Kind of like what he's like. I mean, he's kind of like Puck. I mean, you know, <laughs> if he hadn't been having you know trouble with with in his personal life at the, the point I made Midsummer Night's Dream, I definitely would have cast him as Puck. I mean, he is Puck. He's a he's a trickster as an archetype. He's you know he loves to play. Yeah. Um, and one of the, the, the only things that ever frustrates me about, and it's not really, not really a frustration, but it's just like, he never does the same thing twice, mm-hmm. ever, even if you need him to. So like, you know, like you do seven takes and something restoration, he'd always do something else. He'd always improv something else. So just on a basic editing level, sometimes you're like, I need this moment because I'm going to cut. Sorry, I don't know. There's a dog outside. I don't know if that's going on. <laughs> uh, um, so I need this cutting point. And it was just like, he's just a bundle of, of, of ideas and possibilities, you know? It never really stops. So yeah, sometimes that could be a little bit tr- <laughs> tricky. <laughs> but, but he's a delight. And we've stayed friends over all these years and through all the ups and downs and you know and his life and mine and yeah he's and he's in a very good place now i mean i i hope (laughs) he's iron man now (laughs) he's the biggest he's the biggest the most highly paid actor in the world he's he's as big as it gets but 
but I will, I, I, I hope, and I would say this to him. So say it on the podcast. I, I really want him to come back and, you know, make another little movie, you know, make another, I mean, he, he came close to doing my Gorbadal movie. You know, we had a, we had a lot of, we spent six or five or six days together talking about it. Even did makeup tests, a lot of stuff, but then in the end, he just didn't feel he could do it. And I think he was, you know, he's come to, I think he quite enjoys, you know, he did a lot of smaller indie films when he was younger. And I think between Iron Man and Sherlock Holmes and other big things he's done, he quite, he's come to really like doing, you know, being a big entertainer, which is great. And so that's where he is right now. But one of these days I'll coax him back with something. Yeah. Well, you got, that makes two of us, you know, Downey, if you're listening, mate, we want you back. <laughs> cool. So just one, one uh, just last sort of audition question in a way, because one of the things in that workshop was, one of them was uh, doing a cold reading. And, and so, oh. and so if, if you are in an audition, someone comes in and they're doing a lot of like this, you know, you know, they're looking down, they're looking up, they're looking down, they're looking up, and then, you know, not not the best sight reading in the world. Would that sort of affect their cast? Well, I would just, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it de- depends on what, how good they were when they were looking up, I guess. But um, I, I think that the key thing there is to, is to, again, it's about owning the space. It's about owning the experience. You come in there, don't feel, don't allow yourself to feel rushed. Mm-hmm. Take as much time as you need to look at whatever and then come up off the page and connect. You know, don't feel the rush. It's better, it's better to play like these three linked beats that you can kind of look at and carry in one and then have to take a little moment to re- reorient yourself than it is. But you can also, you know, even cold reading, you're going to still have the page out in the room for for 40 minutes or whatever, or 30 yeah. minutes. So you, there's a lot of work you can do in 30 minutes if you get your head yourself in the right headspace. You know, if you've got to get into a situation where this isn't easy, that you're not distracted by the other people around you, that you're not looking going, oh, that's that guy who always gets the parts I want, that that, you know, who's sitting in that chair, or that's the person I was a drama school with in that take that 30 minutes go out of the room go in the down the staircase and and get centered get centered and 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 make a decision about a big clear choice you can make about who this character is because making a strong clear choice gives you a better chance than anything else of being of making an impression of being remembered mm. oh, fantastic um, just moving on to the sort of editing process of, of films exactly, you know, what's, you know, because I suppose when you shoot a film, you know, you've got so many different options, like all at once. And uh, how do you go about sort of narrowing it down and saying, okay, that's the shot I want for there, that's the shot I want for there, because you've got... I, I kind of know, I mean, like, well, you know, in some, some movies, I've storyboarded the entire thing, so I literally have the whole thing worked out in advance, which I don't recommend, certainly not for me at this point. I don't want to do that anymore because if you're not careful, you end up shooting the storyboard as opposed to seeing what's in front of you, Mm. which I'm much more interested in at this point, just seeing what gifts the universe has given me at any given moment. Um, 
but then you know and, and it is true also that the that the cut footage reveals its own truth you know it it, it does and it, and it requires different things and but in terms of like moments of performance mm. i generally know when i've shot it okay that's it mm-hmm. that's what that's that moment we can move on and and i'm usually when i go back to the editing most of those moments of, perform- of performance are the ones that get into the film but i think it's a lot more about the thing that's always amazed me is how certain moments in the script you felt like that's going to be so moving that's going to be so important and there'll be another moment that you almost didn't care about or know i mean you certainly didn't see it as it is the essential building block that it becomes but all of a sudden because the film the film it behaves differently than you imagine it to some extent so that's kind of remarkable and so you need to just stay really alive Mm. to what 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 the images are telling you and and also something you find really often is that there's whole bunches of stuff that you that needed to be in the script to be clear for the reader that aren't important once you're in the film at all because they're communicated and you've got so many channels of of sensory communication going on in a movie that there's and there's so many ways to to communicate information that that all of a sudden you know certain things you think were critical like I think I mentioned it the other day there's a big big scene in the middle of the gore movie which we just got to it in fact not only was it not necessary it was actually an impediment because it it told the audience too much information too early yeah yeah Um, is it okay to ask you about um your film gore about it or is it about yeah it's fine yeah dear mr dear mr Mr. vidal it's called yeah yeah and um do you think um We'll get. The, I mean, obviously, it's 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 a tricky thing to sort of release it because I know it starred a certain uh, uh, Kevin Spacey, and um, you know, do you think? Do you think? Do you think there'll be a resolution to it? Do you think? I hope so. I I mean, there's all I can say. I mean, I I I don't. Um, all I can say is, you know, working with Kevin. I what I saw on my our set was, you know, uh, he was very professional. He was very good to work with um that's not to say anything about i mean i don't pretend to know the ins and outs of 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 his life or his past I, all i know is 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 that working with him was a positive you know experience just on a on that level um he does a very good job in it and i but i i more to the point i think that the script the story itself being about you know what we're willing what parts of ourselves we're willing to give up or compromise to get what we want is very relevant and interesting theme to explore, um, especially in the world of of Me Too, um, and uh, and so that's that that I I think the movie has you know really has does have something to say. So I hope it has a legitimate place in the current dialogue. So I really hope for that reason that people are someday able to see it, but. You know, I, I can't spend a lot of time worrying about that. I, I mean, it was, yes, three years of my life and it's a big frustration. But um, on the other hand, I've had, a, as, you know, if I want to worry about that as a piece of bad luck 
or whatever or bad fortune, I then have to kind of go or in, I, I mean, I just have to sort of acknowledge the amount of good fortune and good luck I've had, you know, so you've got to take you got to take one with the other and and um and i you know so i move on and i and and have been very productive since then in terms of what i've written and uh, written a musical written a play written a written um three more screenplays written two television pilots and and sold one of the series so so and i think just sold another another script idea at can um so you know I'm not. I'm not sitting on my hands. No, you're on fire. You're on fire. I don't know. I don't know if I'm on fire. I'd like to get something done. Although this, this uh, TV show called American Classic that I'm doing with Kevin, I think, is probably going to go at the end of this year. Um, mm. uh, it's been, you know, it's been frustrating, but it's been frustrating for everyone. COVID, COVID was a super weird time, you know. Yeah, very, very odd, very odd. But uh, you know, I think we're the best times are ahead now, which is good. Uh, yeah, so I just have a few more questions. Uh, just how many more have I got left? Uh, just two or three more questions for you today before we just sort of wrap up. Okay. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, just one extra. When's the musical out, by the way? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's hopefully we'll do it at at the festival at Edinburgh next year. That's okay. the that's the plan. We've done one workshop up in Scotland already. It's it's a musical of a of Restless Natives, of the film I made, Restless Natives, that oh, developed with the National Theatre of Scotland. Um, and um, I think it would will be a, you know, the, the festival's absolutely the right place to launch it. Um, but I want to do another workshop before we do. And given how the festival works anymore, I mean, the lead time you need, you, you know, already you should know what you're doing for next, for 2023. So. Yeah. And we're, you know, we're we're getting ourselves together and trying to figure out what kind of venue, whether we want to be an existing venue or we want to create a venue. Um, so it's all, but it's it's in it's in quite good shape. I mean, the we, we we I mean, the score exists, the book exists. We had a fantastic workshop with wonderful Scottish actors, um, and so, like I said, we need. But again. The thing about musicals, that's really, I think the musical theater audience is ruthless. They're kind of like, feed me, feed me. You know, you can't entertain them enough. It's like stand-up comedy. And um, so I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very aware that it needs to be in front of people and we need to learn more about audience response um, as we work on it. But it's fun, really fun. I mean, I, I, I had to, you know, I knew nothing, I knew so little about musical theater. Um, and so to really educate myself about it and see every musical in the West End and think about how they work and what makes one work better than another one. And, and, and you know, the, just this, this, this ruthless nature of like the story needing to move forward and how do you create songs that move the narrative. And, and I, it's, 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 it's really been fun. Yeah. Is it a con is the music continuous or do you have breaks? In no, there are breaks. Yeah. It's very, very, I, it's quite traditional as a, as a, um, as, as you know, it's, it's, it's works off the model of traditional Hollywood musicals, but, but what's interesting is trying to marry big country and the big country sound because big country originally did the soundtrack mm. to, and finding, you know, taking that Celtic rock, 
language and marrying it to musical comedy language. That's been, that's a big challenge. That's really been interesting and intriguing to work on. It sounds exciting. I look forward yeah, to yeah, that. It's fun. Yeah, some of the music is I'm really loving. Yeah, I look forward to the West End transfer next year. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, you and me too. <laughs> um, just just get back to the editing room just for one second. Um, I just thought about this question. Have you ever had, you know, I know you just said that when you edit, you usually know what shot you want to use, etc. But uh, have you ever had a moment? Sometimes. Yeah, yeah, have you ever had a moment in the editing room where you have seen um, a scene shot from a different angle and it wasn't what you anticipated and you just thought oh god constantly yeah. are you kidding no i mean all the time like yeah. i i mean no i mean there was a whole sequence in last station which which was a big important sequence and it just wasn't working you know we were it was we were being i found out later but that we were just being too literal about what we were we were telling it was partly because it was a it was a lot of it was a lot of business with a lot of principles involved in a, in a sequence where, I mean, there's a sequence, it's a sequence where Helen, the Helen Mirren character, Sophia Tolstoy throws herself in, in this pond pretending to want to commit suicide or maybe wanting to commit suicide and people then jumping in after her, rescuing her. And, and anyway, so, but somehow as I'd conceived it and I'd conceived it carefully and, and, and in that case I'd storyboarded because you know, when you're dealing with all these principles in the water and it's all these questions about when, and how much of the scene can you do and keep everybody dry? And then once we commit to somebody being wet, how do we get, you know, get through it as quickly as possible? It was in the middle of April in Germany, it was cold. And, you know, we had to keep it, we had bathtubs in tents everywhere for people to sit in hot water, but that, you know, once they were wet, they were wet, you know? Yes. So, so, um, so anyway, when it was laid out, the sequence just felt varied by the numbers. It felt like, and, and no matter what we did, I mean, to massage, it didn't seem to be doing it. And so at a certain point, the editor said, we both sort of said, let's just throw this up and just start over. And, and by making it impressionistic and making a bunch of time jumps and losing a bunch of shots, all of a sudden it began to become a piece of cinema. And I think the sequence works great, but it's not, it looks nothing like what I storyboarded. I mean, it, so that, that was certainly, you know, a complete rethink, you know, and that happens a lot. I mean, you rethink, you rethink a lot in the editing room. Yeah. It's almost like, um... well, they say, right. The, the movie, a movie's written three times. Once when it's once at the screenplay stage, once when you shoot it and once when you cut it, yeah. and it's true. you really do. It becomes everything else is kind of left behind at the point you get in the editing room. It's just almost like a checklist of like everything that happens in a scene like or in a shot. So you know that, okay, that you can sort of tick that box and say that that is helpful for the story, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I mean, what you find with the cinemas that, that the, 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 the film communicates, like I said earlier, in so many more subtle ways than you necessarily expected, or certainly than you could have counted on mm. when you're scripting. So, and sometimes, you know, by not telling, telling things, you, by creating gaps, you create information. There's always the, you know, there's also, you know, the whole business of the energy that comes from the cut itself, you know, and what you, 
you know, because that's a dialectical relationship between any two images that produces meaning just by putting, I mean, the famous thing was the, it wasn't Eisenstein, it was another early Russian filmmaker, Durga Vertsov, I think his name is, but um, I'm sure I've said the name wrong, but you'll, you'll all have to forgive me. But anyway, I know you probably know about this experiment, but he just literally takes a face, a kind of uninflected image of a face. Mm-hmm. And then he puts of a woman and he puts next to it a crying baby and he asks people, what's the woman feeling? You know, then he puts next to it a, a man with a gun. What's mm-hmm. the woman feeling? Mm-hmm. The, the image of the woman never changes, but the meaning happens in the space between the two images, mm. you know, and that's, mm. so that kind of stuff, you can't, in certain cases, you might be able to imagine it, but, but generally speaking in writing a screenplay, the, the task of the screenplay in terms of convincing people to finance the movie and actors to get on board with the movie is just a different, it's just doing a different job than, than the film does. <laughs> Fantastic. I, I just have just two, two more questions for, for you today, actually. I'm just you hearing about the like financing the film and stuff like that. Could yeah. you, um, tell, me, tell me about the journey of actually getting a script and actually making a film. So, so you've got a script and then you present it to uh, the studio and then what happens? Well, it depends. I mean, I've made like 16 movies and every one of them would be a different story, you yeah. know? about if I were to tell that story, Um, you know, I mean, there's, but I I suppose there's definitely, there's different, in in broad strokes, there's very different paths. Yeah. Easiest path at the moment is if, you know, you sell your package to a streamer, that's the easiest, Mm -hmm. you know, like Gore was, I mean, it's sad because it's had a troubled life, but the making of it was easy because Netflix, said yes mm-hmm. they gave us all the money we needed to make the movie they didn't really they didn't nickel and dime us they didn't question the the budget it wasn't and we were responsible about what we asked for um and then they never came on set they never well matt broadly came and visited but it was super pleasant he just yeah. and no they never questioned it they never questioned our it in the editing and uh, you know they just they let us get on with it so that is a kind of dream scenario that almost never happens. Then there's a, then I've made studio movies, which are either I would have taken a project to the studio, like Midsummer Night's Dream, <clears throat> took to Fox, or they brought me a project like One Fine Day or or yeah. Soapdish. Again, in very different states of development. Soapdish was a page one rewrite, just was a do-over. And so it was all a lot about you know, the early stages were a lot about script work and whether, you know, the, at that point, the studio was developing lots and lots of movies. You didn't know what was going to, what they ever were actually going to make, yeah. or that, even how sincere they were about the project because it wasn't costing them that much at that point. And then, you know, and then you get, then once you get the script, you start going through the casting process. If you finding that the cast is kind of coming on board and it's really working, then then, you know, it's, and the budgeting is going on at the same time. The budgeting is constantly shifting and changing depending on what, what cast members are coming on board. And then you get, but you get to a point where they green light the movie and give you a start date. And then, then at that point, you know, what would, oh, then it becomes very like the other, at the point you have a green light and you have the budget and the cast, 
things get similar, right? Because then you're doing pre-production, you're shooting the movie, you're editing the movie. Um, depending on the size of the budget and the expectation of the financier, that editing process can be more or less complicated with more or less input and more or less collaboration slash um, interference. Mm -hmm. um, so, but then there's, you know, like a purely independent movie, um, like Last Station was, which is like in that case, I would write the script and I would get the, just the, the um, cast on board without any kind of commitment from any financier. I would get asked for what are called letters of intent. I'm saying, the, you know, all things being equal, I want to do this movie. So with Last Station, I wrote it and I originally sent it to Meryl Streep and Anthony Hopkins and they both said yes. Mm -hmm. So then I had those two people. Then I got Paul Giamatti and Laura Linney involved. And so I had this package and I was going out and I was still wasn't able to get it financed at that point because mm -hmm. at that point it was Meryl before Devil Wears Prada, which I mean, she was like, a goddess as an actor, but but not necessarily didn't mean box office. It was before Mamma Mia. So, and that was curiously in that process. So you're trying to get it. So you get that together and then you go shopping to independent sources of finance, trying to ask them for, you know, trying to get them to, and trying to find a foreign sales agent. And try, anyway, what happened in that movie was I got introduced to a German director Jens Muir and an English director who were working together and thought they could access a significant chunk of German money because there was a lot of interest in German-Russian co-production at that point. Mm -hmm. So I, and if I shot it and also if I sh shoot it in Germany. So I wanted to shoot it in Russia, but, um, but it made, it came to make a lot more sense to shoot it in Germany. Um, so I went down that road and then we, we, we got, that, and those those processes, unlike the studio who can say, okay, it's greenlit, I'm writing a check. Those processes in the indie world often are long application procedures. Mm -hmm. So at one point when Merrill had time and Tony had time, they couldn't get the money together. So then, and then, so I lost that date. So I then see. I was constantly trying to get another date with Merrill. Meantime, Devil Wars Prada happened. Meantime, Mamma Mia happened. It's because this was a long, it was like five years, this process. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, Meryl was one of the biggest box office, female box office stars in the world. Yes. So I couldn't get a date. It wasn't that she wanted more money. I just couldn't get a date. And finally, I said to her, look, I've heard through the grapevine that Helen Mirren's people might be interested. I think I'm going to have to try to get this done. And she was like really gracious about it. And she was, and she always was, and she was always a big fan of the movie. But anyway, so I went to Helen, Helen committed. Tony then had got cold feet for whatever reason. Mm. But in the meantime, James McAvoy had had a hit with last King of Scotland. And I'd seen it and I thought that's the guy to play Bulgakov. So I got James's phone number through a friend call James, send him the script. He said, yes. So then I had James and Helen. So who played the guy who played Tolstoy became less important. And so I could offer it to Christopher Plummer, who was perfect, but not a big, as big a star as he became after doing 
Last Station getting an Oscar nomination and then winning the Oscar with Beginners. So all of a sudden I had a package that could work and, and, and we could, you know, push it over the line, but it was, you know, it's that kind of financing and that kind of exercise, the indie route is complicated and, and super time consuming, but you have more, but I had final cut, you know, so that's worth something. So that movie is exactly, even though the producers disagreed with me at a certain point, quite vociferously, I was able to make the movie I wanted to make and got Oscar nominations and won all kinds of awards. And so there, so there producers. (laughs) God, I'm just, I'm just in a, I'm in awe of that story. Thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was not always fun to live through. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> I think Ryan Reynolds talks about that, you know, making, when he made Deadpool, he said it was like the best and worst relationship he was ever in. And, you know, cause that, that was a long process for him as well. But uh, yeah. So I just love the fact you just, you got James McAvoy's phone number. Just went, Hey, I want, I want to, see, I want you in my film. <laughs> well, 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 I didn't, I didn't do it that way. I mean, the truth is yeah. I was so, I was truly blown away by his performance in Last King of Scotland. I was just like, yeah. I, I didn't, you know, I had never seen him before and I was just bowled over by, by it. And so, I mean, it was, it was just, was more like please 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 be in my film please so you know I was I was I I I I just but he really really loved the script so that was good that was good yeah wow he's an incredible actor as well isn't he yeah he's, he's one of the best I've ever worked with he's such a he's a brilliant listener mm. you know he, that's I mean listening is so crucial yeah craft of acting and I've James never worked with anyone who listens with as much vitality and clarity as he does i mean he listens he hears something it passes through his body and you see it's like clouds going over the moon you see this thing come across his face which is just truth he's just unbelievable he's an open he's an open actor massively massive james mcavoy on here yeah i was lucky enough to see him in serrano de bergerac in town um yeah he's very good magnificent magnificent performance uh wow i just i'm so bowled over by everything we've talked about today michael thank you so much for you're everything. welcome that was fun yeah i just just finished on one final question with my yeah. guest and that is um in your extraordinary career you know feel free to use more than one example but has there ever been a a time or a series of times which you've gone through which you'll never ever forget oh my god i mean that's, I mean, I mean, lots. I mean, I don't even, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, when, I mean, you just, I mean, there'd be, there's so many because in almost every movie, there's some scene or some moment, even in movies where I can see a lot of things I'd like to do differently. There's, there's, there are moments and, and that just absolutely were exactly what I wanted them to be or dreamed they would be or better, probably better. But I do remember one crazy thing on, we were out shooting in the desert in, on promised land in West of Salt Lake, really in the middle of nowhere. It was so cold. I mean, we had two grips go down with frostbite. I mean, it was really, it was like minus 23 degrees and we were were shooting Mm -hmm. and there was this, and I, 
there's this really long scene that I wanted to shoot in one with this long track that was laid out in the out in the sagebrush. You know, it was like I had to be, I think it was elevated or something to be able to keep it um fluid and and smooth enough. And it took it was a big a fight between a fight that became a kind of reconciliation between Meg Ryan and Keeper Sutherland. They get out of the car and they, she runs into the desert and then and the, out into the desert and he runs after her and he catches her and and so it's this long track with them and then it becomes a 360 around them while when they're embraced and it was and we had one chance at it i mean it was one we we had one and and, and it was the kind of thing that you would generally rehearse again and again and again but it was the one chance was because the sun was going down and uli the cinematographer said that was going to be it and so i was like Okay, guys. I mean, no this, pressure. Is, this is what the but we you know you're clear about where you are, right? Yeah. And and you know what the what the scene has to do, and who you are with each other. And they really they were they did really trust each other. Um, I'd done a very smart thing, and I if I do say so in the rehearsal process where I because a lot of their story is about a road trip that they take between. Uh, Reno, Nevada, and Boise, Idaho, and driving across the desert. And so I had rehearsed with them in Reno and then given them keys to a pickup and said, I want you just to drive the drive the the path they take and make me a movie of your journey. And they came out of that experience so bonded, the two of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, but anyway, in this, and then so we went call to action and and this thing just unfolded. <laughs> it was absolute all I could hope for you know with this and and of course the fact that it was magic hour and the sun was gone and you had this weird pink light in the sky just made it you know wow something so I remember that I mean you know I remember that I remember you know but I could I could probably find something in every film that that was like that you know yeah, but again, divine intervention. <laughs> yeah, I guess, but but you know, and but all of a sudden, everybody kicking in the same direction. You know, everybody—that's yeah. a lot of it. Everybody being committed to the story, mm-hmm. being committed to the journey of those characters, and and how we believed it was an important thing to tell. Mm-hmm. I think that's you know, and everybody just committing to that and and being open to what happened in the moment, you know? As they say, teamwork makes the dream work. There you go. Yeah, that's right. Wow, I'm just so bowled over. Uh, Michael, this has been so, this has been incredible. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your story. And yeah, uh, yeah, I I really don't know what to say. I'm just so, I'm just so bowled over by it. Just thank you so much. yeah <laughs> i don't know what to say but yeah guys thank you for watching thank you for listening this has been the answer to critic podcast um if you just hang on after i end the recording mike i'll say goodbye to you one to one and yeah. Uh, okay. yeah i'm speechless thank thank you so much yeah, yeah it was great thank you